Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends, once again, welcome back to another episode of Now Appalachia broadcast and heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us today, and we are talking to an author today named Scott Blackburn about his debut novel, and it is a good one. It is called It Dies With You, and we're delighted to have Scott with us today as we profile this book and talk a little bit about why he wrote it and his first novel and the experience of of putting that together. And Scott joins us today. He is an English instructor, a coffee shop owner, and a graduate of the Mountain View MFA program. When he's not writing, teaching, and pulling espresso shots in his 1960s-themed mobile coffee shop, Scott also enjoys training in combat sports such as boxing, Muay Thai, and Jiu-Jitsu, in which he holds a black belt. And he currently lives in North Carolina with his wife, and their two children. So Scott, I'm so delighted to have you on the program today to talk to us about your debut uh, Southern Noir novel because it is just an excellent book and welcome to the program and glad to have you with us today. Thank you, Ellen. I've been looking forward to this and I appreciate you reading and I appreciate the kind words. Uh, it was my pleasure and I have to ask you about your very first line. When I read this book for the first time and I uh, I read it twice, actually, just to make sure that I got everything right. But the first time I read it, your first line pulled me in. And I wanted to just read it because it says so much and really sets the scene for everything that we're going to follow uh, in your story. And you write with the first line, I was bouncing at Red Door Tap Room on a Friday night in January, which all but guaranteed that I'd be earning every last cent of my paycheck. So who is talking, where is he, and what is going on as we dive right into that first line and that first page of chapter one? So you can tell by the opening, I wrote this in first person, uh, and that's kind of my go-to point of view because uh, that's what I'm comfortable with, and I I love reading first person, so I've always kind of stuck with that. So that is my narrator, Hudson Miller, uh, roughly 30 years old. and he is opening the scene in a bar called Red Door Tap Room that he works in downtown, um, little city in North Carolina. So, and you can t- and you and from the get go, you know he's a bouncer. So, with that opening line, you know you have the scene set. You kind of get a short of short little blip about you know who the person is narrating, but also you get a little bit of danger because you're not bouncing. Um, in a bar and not going to see some, some crazy stuff pop off now and then. And so I wanted to open with that line. Um, I wanted to set the scene and who this guy was, but also give that little bit of a sense of danger to start the story. And I understand that you wrote this chapter last, or this was one of the chapters that you wrote last, which I found really interesting because a lot of writers start with chapter one first and kind of work their way through, even if they move chapters around uh, later on, midway through or towards the end. What made you come back to this chapter later on in the drafting process as opposed to starting with chapter one first? Well, usually I do kind of start with chapter one and move my way forward. But with this one, I got pretty late in the first draft in this. And I think the entire time something inside me was saying, um, don't start a book with someone waking up or especially waking up to a phone call. 
All right. So that's how second chapter is, which is fine for a second chapter. But for a first chapter, I kind of knew that. And a guy in my writer's group brought it up one day. And I was like, man, I've been waiting for someone to tell me. They're like, yeah, don't do it. And, and an agent or an editor is going to tell you anyways. Like, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of played out the waking up to a sudden phone call. And so I was like, all right, well, something has to happen the night before the phone call. So let's throw our our narrator into an interesting situation that kind of builds to this phone call that really kicks off the narrative of this novel. So, yeah, that's why I went back and wrote that chapter later, because I was trying to avoid that cliche. Now, I've seen it done well in movies or, or books, but I was like, all right, um, I need something before this phone call. So that's why this ended up first. Very good. Very good. So you mentioned your main character, Hudson Miller. Kind of the impetus of the story is a couple of things have happened. He has been uh, not allowed to box anymore. The North Carolina Boxing Commission has suspended his license because he kind of had a hothead moment and, and popped somebody in the chops uh, outside of his normal uh, boxing routine. So he's got that that he's dealing with, or a boxing match. He's got that that he's dealing with. But really what happens to him, he gets a call from a detective and finds out that his father who had been living in Flint Creek, North Carolina, uh, has been murdered. He owned a junkyard there, and he's been murdered. Um, and one of the things we see is Hudson going back to Flint Creek, North Carolina, after several decades of being away. And we learned that Hudson and his father, Leland, don't really have a great relationship. I wanted you to tell me a little bit about, talk a little bit about Flint Creek, North Carolina. What has happened to this community in the years that Hudson has been away? And kind of what's happened to his father? What's happened to this community that plays so uh, such an important role in the story? What's gone on since Hudson's been away? And what does he see and find when he comes back? I think what has happened is that nothing new has happened other than this murder, but everything is the same old town he remembers and kind of wanted to get away from. Um, he just has more of a bad memory or bad vibe about this town because his father was so kind of well-known in the town, uh, heavily involved in, you know, local decisions or just hanging out with people that make big decisions in the town. So I think it, it's his father and their soiled relationship that kind of just sours this town for Hudson. It's not necessarily, and as it, the novel goes along, he warms up to the town, the good parts of it, because it, it's like with every town, there's good and bad. Um, but for so long, I think he carried it around as this bad place because, it, you know, he related it to his father, just kind of this stuck in the 1960s feel of the town where, you know, if you don't kind of look a certain way or act a certain way, um, go to a certain church, you're kind of shunned. So he kind of had a bitterness going back to Flint Creek. Um, but of course, like I said, when, it, when he moves back, you realize, yeah, there's some great people here. You know, there's obviously a kind of a rotten underbelly of the town, but there's good people, too. And there's some people in the town that aren't excited to see him come back, even though he's come back certainly for a reasonable and a justifiable reason. Uh, we find out that the police aren't real excited about him being there and they're not real interested in finding out what happened to Leland. And they're not really concerned in terms of uh, uh, putting this investigation at press priority number one. But, but I love the interaction that he has with his hostile mother-in-law, Hudson's hostile mother-in-law. Yes. Yes. And, and talk a little bit about that and, and I felt like she was kind of speaking for uh, everybody who um, hadn't seen Hudson in a while. And now all of a sudden he's reemerged. What happens in those conversations and what, what's the relationship like between Hudson and her? I, so in the book and like, I'm not giving any spoilers, like, cause if you read the back of the novel, you know, it's going to say he had an estranged father. Um, the relationship's kind of, you know, on the outs, but 
that had to do mostly with this woman who's a stepmother, became a stepmother. Um, she had an affair with his father and she's kind of what Hudson would consider just kind of like trashy, loud mouth, just, I don't know, everything that kind of his mother wasn't. And so, you know, when he goes back to the town, these same people that he didn't really care for, or, you know, feel the same about him. It's almost like he got too big for his britches. Like, oh, you're coming back now that something's happened or you might get something out of it. But um, he feels the same about them. It's almost like he doesn't really care to be around them and they think he's maybe too good for them. So it's kind of like a mutual agreement that like, yeah, you're not, you're not exactly welcome around here. Um, not everybody in the novel feels that way, but there's definitely a core of people that are like, yeah, you probably should just stay out. Yeah, very good. And I know one of the scenes I love, uh, or a lot of the scenes I love in the book involve um, a character that is at the junkyard when Hudson arrives, and uh, his name is Charlie Soph. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Shof, yeah, Shof, Shof. Shof, Shof. Okay, yeah. I want to make sure I got that right. Um, he's a former Vietnam War veteran, and one of the things yeah. I loved about the interplay between him and Hudson, and I'm trying not to give away any spoilers here, but I love that both of those characters seem to be talking to each other, but also past each other. And it's almost like that Charlie knows more information about what's going on at this junkyard than he really wants to admit. Um, and so they're kind of doing, he and Hudson are kind of doing this odd sort of tap dance around each other, talking past each other and around each other. Why is Charlie so hesitant to uh, sort of, uh, you know, welcome Hudson in, so to speak, knowing that his father's been murdered and, and his son's been away from a while. And he's just there trying to piece together what's happened. Why is Charlie so kind of resistant and, and wanting to do this tap dance uh, with, with Hudson in terms of talking about what really happened? I think since he doesn't ever, I think there's some subtext there. I think since he doesn't ever outright say certain things, I always just assume that like Charlie maybe knew some stuff was going on in the junkyard, but he was just the hired help and he just kept his mouth shut and went along with his day. And like maybe the fact that he ended up being right about some stuff that shady things were going down in the junkyard when Hudson shows up, it's another inconvenience to his life. He's like, well, I got to go back, you know, I got to go back to work here. Uh, it's got a bad memory to this place. And like, let's just leave this alone. Let me move on with my life type of a thing. And he even tells like Hudson, I think in his narration says, I had to convenience his wife, his life in some way. And uh, he wanted me to know it. It's almost like Charlie would rather have just faded into the background, but Hudson hooks him with a promise like, hey, you know, who's going to hire you? You're 70 some years old. Like you need the money. So I think he's just kind of being cranky and, you know, purposefully cranky at first and kind of standoffish with Hudson. Um, and also, he does, I don't think Hudson's dad probably said a lot of good things about him behind his back through the years. So Charlie probably doesn't know what to think about this kid or, you know, or what this kid's intentions are coming back to his hometown. So I think that's that's really it. And one of the things I love that you did was was use the an element of, of personification because there's a junkyard dog literally involved in your story, Buster, which is uh, also there at the junkyard when Hudson arrives. But th there's a scene in which Buster, uh, you know, one night starts sort of barking and, and digging at this part of the junkyard. Um, and it looks like he's trying to look for something under one of the cars. Uh, and then we soon find out that once they look underneath that, there's another body. Uh, that has mm -hmm. been buried sort of inside uh, that. Uh, and then later on, we find out the police, when they actually do decide to take this seriously, find that there is a, is a, a series of guns, of, of high-powered weapons under one of the floorboards 
uh, mm -hmm. inside uh, the office there at the junkyard. So we have these two red herrings kind of dropped in here. And I, I wanted to ask you sort of a writing process question about that. Um, it, did you know in the story that that where those were going to pop up or what was in, in terms of where those were going to show up in the story, you know, the, the, the body in the buried in the car below the car and sort of the, the guns under the floorboard? Or is that something that, that came along as you were thinking about heightening up the tension or suspense. How did you decide to kind of drop those two in? Because those were two moments in the story when I was reading, I was thinking, Oh my goodness, I did not see that coming at all. I didn't think that's where we were headed and I loved it, but I just wondered kind of where you made the decision to kind of drop those two pieces, those two details into the novel. Um, I think as far as those ideas came, I think I had those pretty early on. I was like, I want to make sure his dad is tied up into some, some shady stuff. And then some big revelation in the book about how shady it possibly got um, without giving anything away. And again, these are things that, that, you know, if you read the back of the book, that, that there's a body found and that his dad was involved in some, some gun running possibly and some other things. So honestly, I think what I wanted to do when I was adding those things in was um, they don't happen super early. Um, I never want to write gimmicky. Um, so when people pick this up and expect it to be a thriller, maybe it has some thriller elements, but it's not a traditional thriller. That's just going to grab a hold of your throat from the first page. You know, in, in some ways it might, but it's not, I don't throw something in there super early. So what I wanted to do was just see how it played out organically. Um, I wanted him to, I think the guns are discovered pretty fairly early in the novel before the body. So I wanted some danger to be there early to keep people's interest, but I wanted the rest to happen kind of organically. I wanted him to kind of start getting used to living in this town again and establish the characters and then what's at stake for each character and then throw in this big, you know, oh shit. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what, that's what happens when they, when they find a body in the yard. And then from that point on, it's kind of like, you know, all right, we got to really figure out because now, now, you know, they found his dad dead at the yard for the gunshot wound. Now they find another body. So the, you know, the obvious suspect is, is his dad because apparently Charlie says he doesn't know anything about it. Hudson obviously doesn't know anything about it because that's not his junkyard. But um, I did want it to happen. I think I knew that was something I wanted to happen when I first started writing this novel. But I wanted it to happen pretty organically and just to see where it felt natural instead of like, hey, I'm going to hit him with this early because I really didn't. Um, you know, there's some pages that pass before you get to some of those revelations. We're speaking with author Scott Blackburn today on this episode of Now Appalachia. The title of his debut novel is called It Dies With You. And Scott, we'll come back to the book uh, in just a second. But I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions uh, about process and uh, how all this came to be for you with your debut novel. And I know that, that, that you've written and have done some writing for a long time. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, how you got started being a creative writer. And when did you make the decision to take on the challenge of writing a novel for the first time? I think in my, I'm 39 now, I think in my 20s, um, I remember just writing goofy stuff. I think I had like a little blog I'd set up and it was all like nonfiction, just me, just just talking crap, just just goofy stuff. Um, nothing serious, nothing, nothing made up. So I hadn't written any fiction except I guess growing up in school for like an assignment. Um, and I only read nonfiction from the time I was probably 20 till about 32, I wouldn't pick up a fiction novel, um, which is weird, right? 
Um, so around age 32, 33, I don't know. I, I think I was walking through a bookstore one day and I saw a bunch of books. They're like, okay, I've kind of fiddled with some words before, but like, what if I wrote a novel? It's like, it could be cool to see my book on a shelf in here. And that was like, it sounds kind of vain. Um, but I really had that thought, like, man, that would be super cool to see my, my name on a book spine in this store. And I do like stories and I do like movies and, um, and I do like writing. So let's see if I can pull this off. And I think I also knew it would be an incredible challenge. Um, I think at that time, I didn't realize what a challenge it would be. I knew writing a novel would be tough. I didn't know how hard it would be to go from writing a novel to getting it out to the world, um, the, the publishing process. But I knew it was a challenge and I really like, I knew it was one that I had to really set my high, uh, sights high for. And so I think that's what it was. It's like, man, this would be a big accom accomplishment. Let's see if I can actually pull this off. And, um, and so that same day I was walking through the bookstore and just looking at stuff like, well, all right, if I'm gonna write a novel, what am I gonna write it about? Because most of the nonfiction stuff I'd read up until that point was true crime. Um, which now documentaries and podcasts are all true crime and I'm still into all that. But so I was like, hey, there's going to be a criminal element involved, I'm sure somewhere, just because I like, you got to have a body to have a story. And, and, you know, that was my thinking at the time. And I still kind of believe that for my own writing, but um, I picked up a book by someone, I think, you know, Wiley Cash. Um, that I think if I'm not mistaken, that was the first fiction book I read in my thirties. And it had probably been 10 years since I just randomly picked up a, uh, a uh, fiction book and it was a land more time than home. I remember reading the back of it. I was like, wait a minute, this guy's from North Carolina. He doesn't look much older than I do. Maybe this is the book I need to read to inspire me. And so when I started reading it, uh, I was immediately just blown away because I think until that point in my life, most of what I'd read that was fiction was stuff from academia, um, stuff I'd read in high school. A lot of stuff with very flowery language, uh, maybe complex. And when re I was reading Wiley's prose and I was like, man, this is very simple. And these people speak the way uh, I do and people I know do. Um, I was like, I've never seen anything like this before, at least not in many years. And I was like, man, I think I, think I could do this um, to some degree. So that really inspired me. And then that kind of led me to people like Tom Franklin and David Joy and some other people kind of in this region. Um, and that really did help me. And, and they all did write about things I was interested in. But again, it was just seeing simple language um, and how beautiful that can be and the importance of, of writing a good story. Because I think before that point, you know, oh, to write a good story, you have to use big words. And then I found out really quickly, like, no, that is, that is not true whatsoever. So that's kind of how it started for me. And then I, um, I sat down, I wrote something, I guess it resembled a novel. No, so I looked online. It's like, what do you do after you write a novel? It says send it to agents. I'm like, I don't even remember who I sent it to, and they were not that terrible to me. I mean, they didn't. They actually responded, whoever it was. Um, but I remember thinking at the time, like, okay, I'm going to write another one, but I got to be better at this, and I got to really learn how to write. And um, and so I kind of snuck my way into Wiley Cash's MFA program, and uh, he uh, he actually mentored me for two years while I was writing my first novel. Um, and that novel was agented and it almost sold to a couple pretty big houses, but it never turned out to be my uh, debut. So that one, that one's in the past, but it did teach me how to write a novel. 
and almost one at a publishable level, but not quite. Um, so with this novel, this was really my second serious attempt at a novel. Very good. And we've, we've had Wiley and David Joy both on the program before. And, and yeah. you're like, you, you, you couldn't find two better writers, storytellers, awesome people. Uh, yeah. It's just really, really great uh, people to, to know and to listen to and to read for sure. Um, I also want to ask you, I believe you sold, you used to own a coffee shop, right? And you recently sold it. Am I right on that? Yeah, yeah. When you said it earlier, I was like, man, I'm gonna have to correct him later. Uh, yeah, some of my bios online haven't been updated yet. So I, I sold it recently. Yeah, I had a 60s themed uh, RV. I bought an old RV, kind of, you know, made it look like a 60s diner almost in some ways. And then I used to sell coffee out of it. But, um, you know, we have two babies that are two years old and under. So, and I teach and I write. And I teach uh, college courses online, so I don't have any time. So that was actually just a, became a stressor in my life as much as I enjoyed pulling espresso shots and selling coffee. Um, but it was, it was a cool thing. And um, yeah, so I'm no longer a, a small business owner. I'm just a teacher and a writer at this point. Very good. What is it about coffee and coffee shops and books and writing, do you think, since you've kind of been on both sides of it now, that make that such a great combination. I mean, what, you go to a coffee shop and you see people are, are certainly drinking and, and, and talking and that kind of thing. But a lot of people are in there reading. A lot of people are in there writing. I've heard a lot of writers say they do their best writing in coffee shops. Well, what is it about those two things that you think go so well together, having seen it a lot, you know, as, as an owner and, and maybe visiting some as a writer? Um, I think especially in the last few years, when you see a lot of little indie shops, uh, coffee shops pop up just like uh, it's kind of like the craft beer craze, which I wouldn't even call it a craze. It's something people love and I love. So um, I don't know. It's like creating coffee in a good espresso drink is an art in itself. The same as brewing good beer. Um, and it just seems like those places really connect with the arts community and a lot of them support the arts community. So I think it's just a place where like writers and, and songwriters and uh, artists feel welcome. So I personally, other than my own coffee shop when I'm writing on my phone or something, if I get an idea, I don't think I've ever actually been in a coffee shop to write. Um, usually I get my stuff to go and then, uh, then I drink it while I'm writing at home. But I definitely see a lot of people sitting around coffee shops writing or, or you know, who knows what they're doing. They're on their laptops and they look like they're writing. So, um, yeah. And, and it's funny because our local brewery um, is supporting my release. Um, like I said, they're all people that are creative and all people trying to create something. Um, and I think speaking of Wiley, I think one time at a book reading, he told me that great cities are built up by good bookshops coffee shops and breweries, and I couldn't agree more. Scott Blackburn is our guest today on this episode of Now Appalachia. His debut novel is called It Dies With You. Crooked Lane Books is the publisher, and Scott, I wanted to get back to something that happens, uh, back to the book, and something that happens uh, uh, in sort of the second half of the book that I just loved, and 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 it's when Hudson kind of goes back to work a few shifts at the bar that we were talking about earlier, and he turns on the television and he finds out that more information about, we were talking a moment ago about the, the body found inside the car, under the cars at the junkyard. Um, and they release his name. They release the name of the person. They say, well, his body was found at this junkyard. Hudson's mad. He goes charging in to talk to the police. And the police are like, oh, yeah, the, the mother and uh, I believe it was the mother and the sister. Oh, well, the, they're standing over there if you want to go talk to him. And <laughs> it's just like, oh, well, you know, there's oh, no moments. 
But through that whole process, we meet a fascinating character named Lucy, a 15-year-old named Lucy. And one of the things I loved about her character, I felt sort of like she embodied the reader's um, sort of voice in, in one moment because, you know, she gets frustrated with the fact that Hudson's just kind of dragging his feet. The police are dragging their feet in terms of finding out what happened uh, to Mo Reyes, who was the body found in the car. And she she dents uh, Hudson's Jeep, you know, with frustration. And she has that moment in the junkyard where she's like, if you guys aren't going to step up and do something about this, I am. And I kind of felt like she embodied what a reader would say. It's just like, come on, guys, let's let's move faster, work harder. Uh, But she's a wonderful character. Can you talk a little bit about her and kind of what she does to the dynamics with with Hudson uh, and the police and with with Hudson and everything that uh, that that with Charlie and everybody that kind of interacts with? Yeah, so Lucy is absolutely the spark plug of the novel, Um, because I think there's some Hudson's fairly casual. I think he, he cares that his father was murdered, right? Um, even though they weren't close, you know, he was he was a little bit sad about it and more sad that they didn't have a great relationship. But um, so I think he's a little more casual. He's like, well, yeah, you know, police haven't found nothing. So, you know, hopefully they will soon. Um, and that's kind of his mentality. He wants them to find something, but he's not beating down their doors. I think he thinks they're doing doing what they do. They're just going through the process where she you know, her brother at this point in the novel has been missing for months. Um, obviously, they find out he's deceased. But so she's already been going through this for months. But from the get go, she felt like, you know, she's been left in the dark about something that, that people aren't working. Like she's out working the cops is what she tells them pretty much is like, she's like, why doesn't anybody care as much as I do? And like my mom can't care. She works 12 hours a day to, to put food on the table. So I think she's wanting someone to share that anger and share that energy with. Um, and then it kind of starts to infect Hudson and Charlie. Again, Charlie is like, you should just left me at home on my couch asleep. I could have retired peacefully. Uh, and Hudson, again, is very casual. So I think she really lights a fire under them. Um, so this book becomes what I guess they what they call buddy detectives. And I didn't even know that term until I finished the book. And my, my, my friend was like, man, this is a hell of a buddy detective book. I was like, oh, that's what this is. Uh, sort of, it's sort of a little bit of an amateur sleuth thing going on here because they are trying to look into to some things that happened. And, uh, you know, they do go and try to question a few people that are possibly tied into it. But yeah, Lucy w- was a blast to write. And she's so much different than every other character. Um, and she is uh, basically like, I'm the train, you better get off the tracks or, or jump on, um, jump on board now. Yeah, and there was a great scene. I, I won't share the, the second half of this, but there was a great scene where um, she she calls an Uber to go confront a man uh, who was uh, arrested smuggling drug, uh, guns, not drugs, guns. And uh, I, I, I won't say what happens uh, to that, but just the, 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 the sort of spitfire personality, you know, I'm just going to call a new, I'm just going to go talk to this guy. I'm just going to go, you know, stick my finger in his face and find out information about, you know, why he did it and who he is and all of that. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, I just love, you just never knew from, from her perspective, every time she was on the page, you just never quite knew what she was going to say or what she was going to do. And I loved that spontaneity in her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she, she's just at that point where she's fed up. Um, and I think in the book, it says she wear, she's wearing a shirt and one of the scenes that's fitting, it just says nope across it and like big bold letters. I'm like, that, that's her personality. Like she's not going to put up with any crap. And so, yeah, that, that scene was kind of funny because I was like, you know, when you're writing it, you're like, all right, I got to make this, uh, I tried to make that, that book believable. Um, I didn't want to do anything fantastic with it as far as like, oh my God, nobody would ever do that. 
So I had to, uh, I had to be careful not to get too crazy with some of the stuff she did, but also at the same time, I wanted her to do some stuff that a normal person probably would not do. Um, you just got to think she's been railroaded so long and the person she loved the most in the world is dead and, and people are acting so casual about it um, that she would do something like calling over, like, cause at, at that point she's like, what do I have to lose? Like, you know, if someone hurts me, they hurt me. I don't care. I'm going to get answers. Um, so yeah, that it was a lot of fun trying to work out what things I could do with her, it, you know, and where to draw boundaries, but cause she don't really have many. So Scott, you've had one book that you mentioned a moment ago, a few moments ago that, uh, that didn't quite reach publication. You've got your debut novel here. It dies with you. So what are you working on next? What is in the pipeline? And do you have something that you're working on? Do you have something that is draft ready? What are you working on next? And, and if it's draft ready, do we have a publication date, a title, anything like that? Um, so, so it dies with you as a one book deal. Um, so meaning I don't have any pressure right now to write a second book. If I'd gotten a two book deal, you know, they might've given me a date because I don't have a book ready for them. I am working on a standalone novel. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say the title out loud because I'm going to stick with it because It Dies With You came from um, me saying that title one day and the title came before the story. So the title created the story. Um, so the, the book is called The Less You Know. And there I go using uh, personal pronouns in my titles again. Maybe that maybe that's my, uh, my new trademark. But uh, it's also first-person fiction. But I think roughly right now I'm about 70, 80 pages in. Uh, I'm just kind of working things out my brain since I'm not a planner. So some of these questions you ask me, I have to like explore my brain a little bit because I don't have them written down on the wall or a notepad. But um, I do plan like little things here and there. I'll write, I'll write an idea down, but I don't have this big outline that's just because that's, that's just my process but the novel itself uh, does have a teacher narrator um, in his 30s I wanted to, I've always wanted to write from a teacher's perspective um, kind of a slightly bitter kind of worn down teacher like like many of us educators feel like some weeks um, and I also wanted to explore some ideas that I don't think a lot of guys write about um, including fertility um, so the book is about what I have so far and the idea that I'm going with is that he's um, he and his wife have struggled to have children and um, they've had some miscarriages and some struggles there. And they're looking into in vitro or other fertilization you know, processes that are very, very expensive. And so at the beginning of the novel, he kind of loses his job kind of in the midst of this. And so he's got to find some extra work and he gets kind of plugged in with this uh, former student's dad and their family business and uh, it's a little more than he bargained for. So there's definitely going to be an, an element of danger there while he's also working on some stuff like uh, him and his wife going through this fertilization process and the struggles that go with that. So let's I'm going to see if I can have a good balance there because I really want to write about those things and, uh, and I'm really excited about it. So who knows? It takes me, uh, it takes me a little while to get a draft out there since I revise as I go. So Hopefully, by the time I get that draft done, it'll it'll grab someone's attention and get out to the market one day. Excellent. Very good. So in our final moments with you today, Scott, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, your writing or your books or anything like that, where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you, first of all? And then secondly, where can they get copies of It Dies With You? So my website is scottblackburnwords.com. 
Um, if you want to shoot me an email, that's scottblackburnwords at gmail.com. Um, most of my uh, communicating happens on Twitter. That seems to be a, a great place for writers right now. Um, and that is Scott, um, Scott M. Blackburn. M is in Madison, my middle name, my unisex middle name, Scott M. Blackburn. Um, and then Instagram is Scott Blackburn Words. So there's a few places you can reach me. And if you want to order a book, I always suggest calling your local indie. Um, all the indies, uh, indie stores I've talked to in North Carolina so far are, are going to be carrying it. Um, I called ones, you know, Charlotte, Durham, uh, Mountain Region, Piedmont, and everybody's going to have it. So obviously you can get an Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere else. But I would love for you guys to support, um, whether you order that on IndieBound or another website to support your local bookstore. The title of the book is It Dies With You. The author that has been with us today talking about it is Scott Blackburn. It is his debut novel. It is a good one. And folks, you're going to want to add this to your to-be-read pile. You will not be disappointed. And uh, when you get to that first line and that first page onward, it is one heck of a story. Scott, congratulations on the book. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the program to talk about it. And uh, uh, good luck to you with that second book. And once that gets published, because I know it will, uh, we'd love to have you back on uh, to talk about it. So thanks today for the conversation. Thank you, Ellie. I appreciate you guys. We want to take a moment as we wrap up this episode of Now Appalachia to say a special thanks to the executive producer of our program and the executive producer of all the podcasts heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. Thank you, Pam, for all you do to make these podcasts possible each and every episode. We also want to take a moment to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.